Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Good morning. Welcome to worship. Returning to the book of Philippians chapter 1, again I want to remind us that the Apostle Paul's desire in writing this letter to the Philippian church was to encourage the Christians there, to encourage the Christians there to continue to experience joy in Jesus Christ, to experience joy in Jesus Christ. Now, again, let's understand the difference between happiness and joy, and we'll get to that in just a second. The difference between happiness and joy, and he's encouraging the Christians to continue to experience their joy in the Lord. Now, this joy would result in a progressive growth toward spiritual maturity. The various elements, the various principles involved in In increasing their joy in the Lord are also those same elements that are involved in their progress toward spiritual maturity. Now, again, this joy in the Lord is not superficial. It is not cavalier. It is not an emotional high that's based on events or circumstances, or physical conditions. That's happiness. Happiness is circumstantial. And as circumstances change, an individual's status of happiness also changes. We're not happy all the time. We're not happy with situations. We're not happy with circumstances. And if we are happy with situations and circumstances today, those things could very well change tomorrow. And our happiness would fade. Biblical joy, biblical joy is the reality and the experience of a deep-seated satisfaction, peace, comfort, Stability and assurance in one's spirit based upon one's relationship to God through Jesus Christ. That's the difference between joy and happiness. Now, every individual who names the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior has that joy within him or within her. But the desire of the Lord is that that joy would increase as time progresses, as we mature in the Lord, as we grow spiritually mature, as we draw nearer and nearer to the Lord, as we walk down the pathway of Christian life, that joy will become greater and greater within the spirit of the individual so that no matter what the situation or circumstance may be in life, and happiness fades into the background, that joy will remain, and that joy will stabilize us in those situations and circumstances. 
The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 4, chapter 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Now when Paul wrote these words, remember, he was in prison. He was in prison in Rome for having preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's writing to a church that's experiencing difficulties and trials and situations in their life. They were a church in a pagan city in Philippi. They were having hardships and they were even being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. The Jewish contingent in Philippi did not like the Christians because the Christians gave the Jews a bad name. Christianity came out of Judaism. And so the Jews despised the Christians for taking what was theirs and, in their mind, corrupting it. As followers of this itinerant, itinerant radical preacher named Jesus. But despite Paul's situation in prison in Rome, and despite the Christian church's situation in Philippi, Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord, and I want you to rejoice in the Lord as well. R.C. Sproul wrote, quote, The Christian is always in the Lord, and the Lord is always in the Christian. And that is always a reason for joy. Even if the Christian cannot rejoice in his circumstances, if he finds himself passing through pain, sorrow, or grief, he still can rejoice in Christ. We rejoice in the Lord, and since he never leaves us or forsakes us, we can rejoice always. End quote. So it is the Apostle's prayer here. It is his prayer that God would give the Philippian Christians an ever-increasing joy in Christ Jesus as they press on to spiritual maturity. Now, as we've already stated earlier, the key elements to, that contribute to growth uh, in the Lord is an overflowing godly love, which we discussed two Sundays ago, a growing knowledge in, in God and in the things of God, which we discussed last Sunday, discernment, approving what is excellent, sincerity, blamelessness, and the fruit of of righteousness. These seven elements are key to one's spiritual growth and maturity in Christ Jesus. And again, as a result of that, there is that ever-increasing joy that floods the spirit of the individual despite what the situation or circumstances may dictate. That spirit, that soul of the Christian rests firmly in the joy of the Lord. Now our focus this morning is going to be on our spiritual maturity through discernment. 
And so looking again at chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. The Apostle Paul says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. This is the word of God, and we pray his blessing upon the reading of his word. And this I pray, the Apostle Paul wrote, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge, real knowledge, and in all discernment. Two adjectives that we need to pay close attention to in our study of the text. Now there's a reason why the Apostle Paul mentions real knowledge and all discernment together in the same verse. Real knowledge and all discernment paired together in the same verse. Verse. There are three words, if you will. There are three words translated discern or discernment in your English New Testament. The first is a spiritual gift, a discernment that is a spiritual gift. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 10. And this spiritual gift is given so that the Christian can discern between spiritual gifts and natural abilities. It's given so that the Christian can discern between the spirits uh, that are godly and those spirits that are evil. The spiritual gift is given to those Christians who can discern between the voice of God and the voice of Satan or the voice of self. A spiritual gift of discernment. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 10. It's also found in Hebrews chapter 5 in verses 13 and 14. Then there is a second word that's translated discern or discernment in your New Testament. And that's the ability to prove the genuineness of something. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 17, the Apostle Paul is telling the, Thessalon the church at Thessalonica uh, that his letter is true and they should be able to prove the truth of that letter through his personal signature on that letter. To be able to prove the genuineness of something based upon certain criteria. But we also find this word used in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 3 where we're told that uh, we are to study and we're to examine spiritual uh, miracles or signs or wonders to see if they are truly from God or if they're from Satan. Now this is not a spiritual gift here. It is the commandment of our Lord to think about, to study, to examine what is being performed, whether a miracle or a sign or a, a wonder, 
and to determine whether or not this, the origin, is from God or if it's from Satan. The third word is the word that's used here in Philippians chapter 1, and it's only used here in the New Testament. The Greek word is the word that we get, that we translate into the English as aesthetics. Aesthetics. You know what an aesthetic is? Uh, something that is aesthetic is something that's appreciated through personal taste or preference. Let me give you some examples. Some people prefer to contemplate Leonardo da Vinci's painting of the Mona Lisa. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever seen pictures of the Mona Lisa? Whether you've seen the original painting or not, it's a little bitty painting. You know, I used to think that the Mona Lisa was huge, but it's not. It's, it's just a very small painting. And some people just love to look at the picture of the Mona Lisa, trying to figure out who she is, what that small little smile is really all about, that twinkle in her eye. You know, what was she thinking when the great artist was painting her portrait? But they find it beautiful, aesthetically beautiful. Other people prefer viewing some of the paintings of Pablo Picasso. When you compare the Mona Lisa with Picasso's The Weeping Woman, you'd have to be out of your mind to, prepare, to appreciate Picasso's painting as opposed to Da Vinci's painting of the Mona Lisa. But some people, that's, that's their taste. That's what they like, the bizarre, the odd. Some people prefer the snow-capped Bavarian Alps, where other people prefer the subtle beauty of the desert in spring when the cactus bloom. We all have our different tastes. We all have our different preferences. And that comes from a Greek word that we translate aesthetics. But that's not the meaning given to the word here in Philippians chapter 1. To discern here in this text is a mature insight and understanding. That's what the Greek word means, to have a mature insight or understanding. And it's important that the Apostle Paul put this word, all discernment, right next to full knowledge. And his intent was to tell us that it's not just enough for us to have a full knowledge of the things of God. We must also have discernment with regard to that knowledge. And we'll get to that in just a moment. All discernment, not just discernment, but the words that the apostle uses here, all discernment is a thorough application of the full knowledge of the things of God. A thorough application of a full knowledge of the things of God. The things of God that we should have a full knowledge of is God's Word, God's will, God's purpose, 
God's plan for our lives, God's salvation, sanctification, justification, glorification, all of these things that pertain to our relationship to God and the benefits that we've received from God through Christ Jesus, we need to press on to a full knowledge of these things. But not just a full knowledge of them, we also need to have an appropriate application of these things in our lives. Listen. Knowledge without application is useless. Knowledge without application is useless. Someone wrote, Knowledge and application go hand in hand. Without knowledge, application is dangerous. Without application, knowledge is useless. That's a profound statement. I wish I knew who wrote that. I'd send him a letter of gratitude. Without knowledge, application is dangerous. Without application, knowledge is useless. Garrett Higby writes, Biblical knowledge without application leads to self-deception. And that's a profound statement as well. Biblical knowledge without application leads to self-deception. Look at Romans chapter 10. Turn left in your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. I want us to look at the first three verses. The Apostle Paul writes to the Christians in Rome. And in the first three verses, I want you to note the desire of the Apostle Paul for his kinsmen, for his fellow Jews, for those of the stock of Abraham who have not come to faith in Jesus Christ. Notice what he says in Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Now, in the previous chapters, he's speaking about the Jews, his kinsmen. And he says here that his longing in his spirit is that God would save the Jews. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Paul grieved. Paul grieved in his spirit that the Jews had a knowledge of God through their history with God, through the, their experiences with God, through the Mosaic law, the oracles and the statutes and the precepts of God that, that God blessed them with throughout their long and illustrious history. But the Jews sought after God through externals. They, they sought after God through the law. They sought after God through rituals and through ceremonies and through their religion. And they missed having a personal relationship with God in their heart, in their mind, in their soul. They had a zeal for the letter of the law of God, but they did not have a zeal 
for God himself. And it becomes very clear and it becomes very plain when you read through the Gospels and you have these elders of Israel, you have the the priestly uh, leaders of Israel attacking Jesus all the time because he did not comply with their laws, their religious laws, their ceremonial laws. Their ritualistic laws. They were more concerned about crossing the T's and dotting the I's than they were concerned about standing before God whom they knew personally. And so the Apostle Paul writes to the Philippian Christians. His concern for them about an overflowing love about a full knowledge of God and about a a proper application of that knowledge into their lives. And that's my concern for all of us as well. That should be every pastor's concern for his people. That should be every Bible teacher's concern for his people. That they would not only know what the Scripture says, but they would understand what the Scripture means, and then they would apply that into their lives so that they might have spiritual maturity, an ongoing process of spiritual maturity that will result in an everlasting joy for the Lord. Now, this truth goes without saying, my friends. It's the proper application of what we learn from the study of God's Word, from the interaction that we have with God's Holy Spirit, from counsel and from communication and fellowship with fellow Christians, that we would not only know, but we would also understand. And then we would also learn to apply the knowledge of God and the things of God into our lives. Without it, there is no salvation. I know quite a few people, and maybe you do too, I know quite a few people who know the plan of salvation, but they're not saved. I know quite a few people who can walk me down the Roman road of salvation. I know people who can quote John 3.16, Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, Romans 10.9 and 10, Ephesians 2.8 and 9 and 10. I know people who can quote these passages of Scripture and they can tell me what it says and they can tell me what it means, but they've never applied it into their lives. They've never been saved themselves. Without a proper application of God's Word into our lives, there is no salvation. And as Christians who claim to be saved, if there is not an ongoing proper application of the Word of God in our lives, then there is no progress towards spiritual maturity. We would be like the Corinthian church. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church and told them that they still were babes in Christ. They were still feeding off the milk of the Word when they should have already progressed on to the meat of the Word. They did not progress to spiritual maturity. 
It is because they failed to continue to apply the truth of God's word into their lives. And they remained spiritually immature. Psalm 119. Let's go back a little further to the Old Testament. Psalm 119. I'm not going to read the entire 119th Psalm. Did you say thank you? Somebody said thank you. I'm afraid if I were to read the entire 119th Psalm, some of you would get caught up on your sleep. I want you to turn to the Yod section. Psalm 119, the Yod section, starting in verse 73. 73, 74, and 75. I had Chris read from Proverbs 8 this morning because that entire proverb if you listened, dealt with wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. And wisdom, knowledge, and understanding was personified in that proverb as a person. And Solomon, in this proverb, wanted us to understand the benefits of having wisdom, knowledge, and understanding in our lives like we would have a loyal and faithful companion by our side. Wisdom, knowledge, and understanding was God's before the worlds were ever created. And this is what Solomon was getting at. Before the foundations of the earth were created, before the universe was created, wisdom, knowledge, and understanding was with God in glory. And wisdom, knowledge, and understanding needs to be our constant companion in life as well. But here in the Yod section of Psalm 119, Thy hands made me and fashioned me, this is the psalmist writing, Give me understanding. Give me understanding that I may learn thy commandments May those who fear thee see me and be glad because I wait for thy word. I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness thou hast afflicted me. Now here the psalmist is saying, there are certain things I've known about God. I have learned from God. But I want to understand those things. And it's like the prayer of patience. How many of you ever prayed the prayer, Lord, give me patience? Huh? And you're wondering why God never answers that prayer? Huh? Well, he does. You pray for patience, and then he gives you opportunities to exercise what patience you do have, so that patience will grow. Right? Huh? Well, here's the difference between, between knowledge and understanding. God gives us knowledge. He gives us the opportunity to take knowledge in through reading, through listening to others. But it really becomes understanding when we apply that into our lives. You know, you can read, 
you can read the instructions on, uh, out of the manual, uh, and you can say, yeah, well, I understand that, but you don't really understand that until you start following the directions, right? Trying to put a stereo together, trying to hook up your smart TV, you know, trying, you know, trying to fix something on the, on the car motor, uh, you know, trying to make certain repairs at the house. You can read the instructions. You can even go on YouTube and you can find all kinds of instructions on how to do what it is you want to do. But until you put your hands to the task, you don't really understand it. It's like praying for patience. God will give you more patience. But he will do that through your work clothes. He will do that through your experiences. I had little appreciation for mathematics in school. I had little appreciation for mathematics in school. I did well in math class, but it wasn't my favorite subject. Now, Anna, my oldest daughter, she's a math whiz. And many of you know that Vernal Addington taught math in college. Um, I have appreciation for those people, even though I don't have an appreciation for the subject. I didn't think it was important for me to pursue mathematics in a career that uh, involved theology and pastoral ministry, evangelism, missions, so on and so forth. However, I do appreciate mathematics and those who excel in the application of it. Even though I myself don't appreciate math all that much and and when my girls would come home from school with math problems, I, you know, I would find something else to do. <laughs> Just wasn't where I wanted to be. But think of all of the wonderful things that our lives have been blessed with by those who loved mathematics and applied the theories of mathematics to our everyday lives. Mathematics alone does not contribute to the advancement of our culture. When mathematics is applied to different fields of study, such as physics, engineering, medicine, biology, finance, business, computer science, industry, so on and so forth, then you can begin to understand how important math is but more importantly, how important it is for mathematics to be applied properly. Our lives have been so enhanced and our culture has become so far advanced because of applied mathematics. Some of us love sports. Some of us do. Some of us love sports. We love football. We love baseball. We love basketball. Some of us love soccer, tennis, golf, checkers. We love sports. What if all of the contestants, what if all of the contestants in your favorite sport studied the theory of that sport, watched films on that sport, analyze the plays involved in that sport, visualize the concepts of that sport 
but never set foot on the field, on the court, or on the green and actually participated in that game. It wouldn't be very fun to watch. It would be funny, but it wouldn't be fun. How many of us would have complete confidence, complete confidence and peace in our spirit if we were facing a major operation? Let's say a heart operation, a bypass surgery. And after you've been prepped for the surgery and you're waiting for uh, the surgeon to come in and, uh, you know, you've got some pleasant music playing and the nurses and the technicians are doing everything to try to soothe you and calm you down so that you can be just, you know, just at peace with the whole thing and, and, and not anxious about anything. And then the surgeon comes in. And he's dressed and he's ready to go. And he approaches you there on that gurney. And he walks up to you and he says, You know, I graduated from Harvard Medical School with top honors. But I never attended a day of residency. I never attended a day of residency. And as a matter of fact, you're my very first heart patient. Knowledge without application. And that's what the Apostle Paul is praying for the Philippian Christians. And that's the Lord's desire for you and for me. To study this book. To know this book. This is God's master plan for life here in the earth and life hereafter when we leave this earth. This is what God wants us to know, but it's also what God wants us to understand. And again, dear, dearly beloved, most of the understanding that we will gain from this book is when we apply it into our lives. When we take what truths God opens our eyes to, and we allow the knowledge from the Word of God to take the 18-inch journey from the head to the heart. And we actually follow through with what God has instructed us in His Word. How important is that? It is important enough for the Apostle Paul to pray earnestly that the Philippian Christians would press on from just knowledge and into full discernment, the full application of God's Word in our lives. Now, again, I want to emphasize discernment in this text, in Philippians chapter 1, is not a spiritual gift. It is not a spiritual gift, it must be developed. Understanding from God's Word has to be developed in the individual. And again, it is by application that that understanding is developed. How do we do that? Well, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians there, but examine everything carefully. Examine everything carefully. 
Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And beloved, we have to have a will to do that. You know it? You have to be wanting to do that. I, I, you know, I would venture to say, and I may be wrong, but I don't think I am. For us to do anything that is meaningful to us, we have to have a will to do that, do we not? We've got to want to. Now, I know sometimes we're forced to do things that we don't want to do, but I said doing things that we want to do, doing things that we like to do, doing things that, you know, that are important to us, we have to have a will to engage. We have to have a willingness to apply ourselves to that task. We have to will to do it. We have to submit to God's authority as we're reading his word. We have to study the scriptures and we have to apply its truth into our daily lives. We have to test the things that differ with the word of God and we'll get to that next Sunday. We have to continually develop in our relationship with Jesus Christ through the leading of his Holy Spirit. This is how understanding of God, the things of God and the deeper things of God develops in our heart and in our mind. Now, Hebrews chapter 5 verses 13 and 14. I want you to look. This is the final passage of scripture and then we will close. Hebrews chapter 5 verses 13 and 14. The apostle is writing to a Jewish congregation. Well, he's writing to a Christian church. But some of the Christians in this congregation are weak in the faith. And because of persecution that has developed in the region, some of them are thinking about turning away from Christianity and going back to Judaism. There are some in this congregation that are out of the Jewish community and they're enjoying fellowship with the Christian church, but they've not made a commitment to Jesus Christ. And because they're straddling the fence, again because of persecution from the Jewish contingency in the region, they're thinking about forgetting this whole Christianity thing. I'm not going to make a commitment to Jesus Christ. I'm going to stay where I'm at under Mosaic law in the, Jude in the Jewish religion. And so the apostle is writing to a mixed congregation, some who are dyed-in-the-wool Christians, and they have no thought of turning back. Some who are out of the Jewish community, but they're still weak in the Christian faith. And because of persecution or because of their desire for the things of the world, or because they're fearful of certain things, they're going to turn away from Christ and go back into Judaism. Some who've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ, but they're warming up to it. And then other Jews who have nothing to do with Jesus and don't want to know anything about Jesus. It's a mixed congregation that he's writing to. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. Look at those verses with me. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Now do you catch, 
Do you catch the, me- the message of the apostle here? Milk. Just a cursory knowledge of the things of Christ. Superficial. Cursory. Everyone who partakes only of milk, you're only satisfied with, you know, the surface stuff, is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. He doesn't grow. He doesn't mature. And you know this to be true. Many of you have raised children. Infants, they need mother's milk. They need the very basic, fundamental nourishment that they get from milk or formula or whatever. But after a while, we need to wean them off of that and we need to bring them on to more substantive nutrition. Because they're growing. And as they're growing, they're maturing. They're not only maturing physically, but they're also maturing spiritually, mentally, emotionally, so on and so forth. To keep them as infants is a grave injustice to the child. And the same is true here, spiritually speaking, with the Christian. Just to be satisfied with the spiritual milk of the Word is not going to advance you at all in spiritual maturity. But solid food is for the mature who because of practice, who put the things that we know of God and the things of God into practice in our lives have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And I submit to you, friends, that's why some people and even some Christians have a problem determining what's good and what's bad. What's righteous, what's holy, and what's evil. I, I know some Christians, you know, they'll, and they'll present a, a decision that they have to make and they're asking for advice and they don't know which decision they should make. And it's not clear to them that, that certain, if you make the decision to do this, where it's going to lead you, the doors that it's going to open, the pathway that you're going to walk down. But if you make this decision over here, then you have a totally different future ahead of you. And they can't understand, they can't discern between what's good down this pathway and what's evil down this pathway. And they want someone to help them understand what it is that God would have them do, what God would have them decide. Well, that's exactly what the apostle is talking about here. Many of us have been so superficial in our Christian lives that we've not developed into spiritual maturity to make those kinds of decisions. And we have to depend upon someone else to show us, to tell us, so on and so forth. And that's tragedy. This is not a glowing recommendation from the apostle here in Hebrews chapter 5. So once again, in closing, the apostle Paul prays that the Philippian Christians will have full knowledge of the things of God and that they would have all discernment in that knowledge. They will learn to properly apply 
what God has revealed to them through his word, through fellowship with other Christians, through communication, through reading Christian literature, through meditation, certainly through experiences with the Holy Spirit in our lives, so that we will take the appropriate steps to grow spiritually and thereby have a joy unspeakable and full of glory in our lives that will cause us to remain stable and faithful no matter what our circumstances or our situations. And that we will do when we apply His Word in our lives. So let's stand together. David will come and lead us in a song. May we sing this each and every day throughout the day when we have time. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together today. Bless your word, not only to our knowing, but also to our doing, so that in all things, Lord God, you will be honored and glorified. Thank you, Father, for Jesus, who died upon a cross to save us from sin. Thank you that he rose again to seal our salvation through his resurrection. Thank you, Father, that one day he's coming again. And we'll all be gathered home to be with him in glory. Bless now the remainder of the day to your honor and glory. In Jesus I ask and all of God's people said. Amen. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.